As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Two weeks ago, Ipswich. This week, Carlisle. It's Saturday the 21st of March 2015. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a song through from your front door. Tom Carlyle lives in perfect dignity in a little house in Chelsea with a snuffy Scotch maid to open the door and the best company in England ringing at it. So said William Makepeace Thackeray about the subject of today's podcast. Listener, we are the excellent company. We have pulled the front doorbell and here we are in Cheney Row in Chelsea. With me, the custodian of Carlisle's house, Lynn Skippings. Hi, Lynn. Hello. I just discovered in the first few moments after ringing that bell that you not only maintain and look after the house, but you also live here, which is pretty unusual for any sort of museum. Yes, I've been the custodian here and have lived in this house for nearly 15 years. So I feel like I know the house and also I feel the spirit of the Carlisle's within the house. And and I think that's not unusual when some of our volunteers have that same feeling as well. It reminded me straight away when we were talking before we started the broadcast about Dennis Sever's house and the, the strange, perhaps, experiences of uh, the, the guys looking after that, Mick and Dave, living with the remaining artefacts of Dennis Severs himself, but also of his imagination and the, the evidence of um, his imaginings and the history of the house. And I wonder whether it could become restrictive at all to be living in amongst that, knowing that there's only so much that you can do to the place, uh, only so far that you can move things from a particular location. Does it bind you in? Well, not me personally, because I've got my own space uh, that thankfully the visitors don't go through like they do at Dennis Sever's house. But certainly within the house itself that the visitors 
go through all the rooms, the um, layout is as it would have been in the 1850s. And over here, there's a painting by Robert Tate done in 1857. It's called A Chelsea Interior. And you can see Thomas and Jane here in the ground floor sitting room. And as you look around, you can see that a lot of the furniture that you can see in the painting is actually here in this room. That is quite marvellous and very spooky. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like they were here just earlier today. Yeah, people often say that they feel like they're snooping around the Carlisle's house and they think they're going to walk in at any minute. But... Again, it's that feeling, that spirit of place that we try and get over uh, to, to our visitors. It really does look as though you've got this down to the location of the pictures as well. Yes, we've tried our best. Where we've got things, the original things, down to the horsehead chairs and the sofa and the table, we've got them in exactly the same place. A quick description of the room as best I can I think the feature that stands out for me most of all is the floral wallpaper it is white with pink flowers and green leaves and it gives the place a very spring-like feel to my mind most of the pictures and mirrors are ornate and and thick framed uh, gilt frames and uh, there's a lot of what looks like teak to me in amongst uh, well the the sofa's hideous we're not going to get away from that are we well we like the sofa um, it is a Jane Carlyle sofa and um, that uh, she managed to buy she she did a bargain with somebody who was selling it and uh, I'm not surprised <laughs> but it's the same one that's in the painting that's right minus yeah. hound probably a good thing to do before we um, head much further into Carlyle's house is to say a few words about Carlyle his name is certainly one with which I'm familiar and he's immortalised in lots of pictures. I gather he had quite a few artists uh, coming around. Whistler, I know, did a study of him, amongst many others. But what were we known for him? He's a bit of a polymath, isn't he? Well, Carlyle um, came from Scotland. He was... Um, his parents were Calvinists, so he was brought up in a family that was very much about work. Um, and he, he never forgot his um, upbringing or where he came from. And I think that's one of the things that people found... Um, fascinating about Carlyle because, I mean, he had a view on everything. But he also, um, it was his way of talking that um, made people listen. And Fairly full-on and irascible. Yes, yes. But I think over the time that I've been here and um, the more I've read about him and Jane and the people that came here, it, they were a really fascinating couple. And I think when people came here, you know, it would have been an evening or, or the day, but, you know, um, full of uh, listening to Carlisle and trying to get their sort of piece in as well. But when Carlisle um, first came to London, um, he was looking around somewhere to live and rent quite cheaply. And here in Chelsea, which is one of the most expensive areas to live now, uh, he rented this house for nearly 50 years and he paid £35 a year rent. And um, over time, with the negotiating with the landlord, they were able to do changes throughout the house, which you'll notice as we go through. But um, yes, Carlisle and Jane were both thrifty Scots people. And uh, I think it was something certainly that Jane was always proud of, that she could run a household on on virtually nothing. 
and uh, because they weren't rich people. Uh, now, does that suggest then, because I, I know they came from King's Cross before they came down here in the, I think, 1830s-ish. I'm wondering if that's that suggests right. that uh, it was King's Cross at the time, I think, was... I think that's about the time of the big rubbish heap, so probably not, not the most desirable place to be. Really, yeah, because um, they, they rented a place there for, I think, a few months while they were looking around to, um, to find somewhere more permanent. And then they moved from there to here. And, you know, again, there are many letters um, that they've both um, written and are published today in various books. There are about 15,000 letters. You can plot their life, and Jane is such a witty writer, and you can get a lot of their letters online. Jane tells about their moving from that area of London, the east side of London, to here. And, and you know, this starts on their journey of all this letter writing. And, and Jane herself, of course, a notable literary figure in her own right. Maybe we could say something about what they would have found here in Chelsea in the 1830s, what was the scene? Well, I think it was pretty rough. Certainly when this house was built in 1708, uh, the area was quite um, affluent, uh, more rich people living here. Uh, And this row of houses was built on the old, I think it was a pub um, garden or a bowling green. And... Over the years, uh, different sort of working people moved in. So by the time the Carlisles got here, it was it was a pretty rough area. And being close to the river was a bit unhealthy as well. So that's probably why the rents were cheap. And, um, and we know, again, from Jane's letters, various things that went on with the neighbours. And um, they had a little dog called Nero who often got stolen and Jane had to pay money to get him back. The noisy Italian organ grinders used to target writers' houses and Jane used to have to pay them to go away. (laughs) Was was that a trade? I think it was, Annoying people for money? I think it was, yes, yeah. Because I don't think they would have paid to listen to the music so much. Well, certainly Jane (laughs) paid them to go away and not make you know, noise. And I do believe Dickens um, had something passed in Parliament which Carlyle signed uh, where musicians had to have a licence to, to play music in the streets because <laughs> it was such a, an awful experience for people trying to write. And, and deliberately so, apparently. That's, that's an intriguing <laughs> bit of trivia going on there. What will we know Carlyle for in terms of what he achieved throughout his life? What are the big milestones in his uh, professional achievements? Well, the first book that really made him was uh, The History of the French Revolution, um, that uh, his first volume, at the draft of that, he gave to John Stuart Mill to read. And it was when it was in John Stuart Mill's hands, it mysteriously got burned. And Carlyle had to rewrite the whole first volume again. Uh, I, I know that, that that's less of a mystery than uh, the new presenter. I gather the maid was at to fault here. Is, is this rumour true? Well, we have our own rumours here at ah. Carlyle's house. We think it was Mrs Harriet Taylor. John Stuart Mill's lady friend, who I don't think liked Carlyle because he was writing the history of the French Revolution when she thought that John Stuart Mill should be writing it. So I think she might have had something to do with it. (laughs) 
I think the Carlisles thought she had something to do with it. But when Carlisle eventually had finished the book, um, John Stuart Mill gave him a glowing review. Um, he couldn't do anything else, really. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also got some achievements. In, I, I couldn't get over, as I was looking into him, I couldn't get over how disparate his achievements seem to have been. I, I gather there's things he's, he's done in maths and satire as well and history. Yeah. Yes, and and also he, he was always, um, I think, going off on a tangent when he was... Uh, Going, writing, I think it was Oliver Cromwell, he ended up writing Past and Present when he was uh, going round uh, Suffolk, Bury St Edmunds. He wrote about uh, the Abbot of St Edmunds, I think it was. Um, so he, he was always sort of thinking about leaders and men and um, one, uh, he wrote a book on hero and hero worship. And, and in there you've got the the writer as a hero and I think he wrote about Shakespeare and Muhammad um, and he was always fascinated by people who who could lead other people um, hence him writing about Oliver Cromwell and uh, Frederick the Great hmm. So he's uh, this contrasted actually there was a quote I saw nothing to do with this directly from Lenin in something I was reading today, and Lenin was saying that, and I'm paraphrasing loosely, that history starts where there are many people, where there's a mass of people, and not just thousands, but millions of people. Mm. That's where history starts. And I was thinking about Carlyle and whether what he might have thought of that, because he's got this this theory of great men, which actually I think Nietzsche was quite disparaging about. Actually, it wasn't great enough. He, oh right. Um, there's also the idea of the French Revolution and Carlyle's interest in the mob, yeah. and I think fear of the mob if I've if I've understood it at all certainly when he first came to London to make money he did give a series of lectures on hero and hero worship and it was out of those lectures he had this idea that each city should have a place where people could go and see the likeness of their hero and that was the idea behind the National Portrait Gallery here in London and there is the National Portrait Gallery of Scotland and when you go to the portrait gallery today in the original front door, you'll see the head of Carlisle. He's one of the three people over the head. I think Morris and Stanhope are the others just over the door. And then they, there's other people that go around the side of the building. But it was his idea to to start up this, this gallery. And he also uh, started up the London Library because he thought people should be able to go and take books out and read them. Whereas when he went to the British Library, you couldn't take books out. And he thought, well, that wasn't good if you wanted to read the books. He arrived here in the 1830s. And he was here for 50 years. Yes. And when you think of the later Victorian period, one of the things that we keep encountering on this show are the philanthropists, Victorian philanthropists. Yeah. And that idea of self-improvement yes. uh, as, as having serious currency, not sort of ego-driven, but with the idea of standing up and making a difference. Yeah. Was he one of the uh, people forming those sort of cultural tides? Well, I think he probably was, because he didn't have the money to be able to do the very things that he wanted. I mean, although he 
He started up the London Library and he had the idea for the National Portrait Gallery. He had the ideas and he inspired other people to go with those ideas. Certainly when you read other people's biographies or even autobiographies um, and they mention Carlyle, they, they talk about how he influenced them in their thinking. Just opposite here, we've got the George Peabody buildings that was built in Carlisle's time at the end of the 1860s. And, I mean, George Peabody was a great um, philanthropist. You know, he gave money for social housing. Octavia Hill, who is founder of the National Trust, she admired Carlisle, and she said being praised by Carlisle was like being praised by the prophet. So you've got these people who go out to do good that have been influenced by Carlisle. I wonder if we should uh, take a few steps into his place. Yeah, we're we're rounding the table here as uh, some writing equipment laid out in case he pops back for a few words. (laughs) One of the things that you said earlier was about the bright wallpaper. Um, People always assume that Victorians lived in dark houses, but I think this is sort of... um, is quite feminine and says something more about Jane than Thomas. And, and certainly Jane was always doing things in the house, changing things, uh, making things. And, uh, you know, we, as you go through the house, you'll, you'll feel that there's part of Jane as well here because, you know, behind all this, these great men, you've got women. <laughs> There's no doubt about that, and, and it's. I mean, we should get down to brass tacks. Really, every picture of uh, Carlyle, he's a miserable-looking swine, isn't he? He's oh, always he's in a not. foul mood. Look at him. <laughs> no, he's not. In fact, there are a lot of portraits in the house of Carlyle that were given to the house by people who admired him, because when Carlyle died, both when both Thomas and Jane died, because they didn't own the house. The house had to go back to the landlord and Carlyle's niece and nephew emptied the house of the contents and the empty house went back to the landlord. Admirers of Carlyle then raised the money through public subscription and opened the house in 1895. So it was one of the first literary houses open in London and it was run by the Carlyle House Memorial Trust And on the committee, you had Leslie Stevens, Virginia Woolf's father. You had Lord Rosenberry. Uh, uh, Who else do you have? Um, Charles Ashby, the arts and crafts architect. So all of these people that knew Carlyle or admired him all got together and opened this house as a museum. So we've been open since 1895. And because it was opened as a museum, there wasn't very much in the way of furniture here which is why a lot of the portraits were given by admirers. So you, a lot of these portraits were here when it opened in 1895. Carlyle would not have had all of these portraits of himself in the house. Which is interesting, though, and that was almost my next question, whether he would have approved, given his memorialising of great men or offering them as examples. Yeah. I can't help thinking he would have approved of the general idea of the house, but would he have seen himself as a great man? I don't think so. I Oh, gosh, I hadn't really thought of that. I think he would have thought of himself just as Carlyle, who he was, somebody with an opinion. And I think he was aware of the influence he had on people, Um, certainly Charles Dickens, who was a friend. 
uh, he was inspired by Carlyle's French Revolution and he wrote The Tale of Two Cities and he dedicated hard times to Carlyle. I think Carlyle told him once to get some fact into his fiction. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the portrait, well, a copy of the portrait of Carlyle by Whistler, it's very, in a very dark corner, when Carlyle used to go down onto Cheney Walk... To, for Whistler to paint him. Whistler living just around the corner. He was, yeah. yes. And Carlyle said, you know, he's, he's more interested in my coat than he is in anything else because he took such a long time to paint his coat. Well, the thing that strikes me about that picture is it's very similar to the Whistler's mother, picture, is. which is not what that picture's called, but they're very similar in composition, aren't they? Yes, it is, because this painting that is now in the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery and Whistler's mother painting were sold from Cheney Walk when Whistler came back I think he came back from France after he'd been to court with Ruskin and he won the case but he was awarded a farthing I think and he was made bankrupt and to get I think and to make some money he sold that painting to the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery and the painting of his mother, I think, to the Louvre in Paris. And Kelvin Grove Art Gallery had to pay more for the Carlyle painting than they did for his mother. And yet the mother is more iconic. And Whistler also painted a picture of himself in the same pose, which says something about Whistler and his thoughts on Carlyle. <laughs> <laughs> I rather want to see a wall with all the pictures in the same pose. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Um, just something you said there, that farthing damages. I think I remember reading that halfpenny damages was often awarded in cases where the claimant had a good case, but they basically didn't think too much of the claimant. There's an intrigue there. Maybe it was something to do with the fact that Ruskin was uh, knew more people. I don't know. <laughs> We're heading towards the back of the house now about midway through from a window we can see a very neat graveled path up to the manicured a little bit through but it's that time of the year when lawns are suffering i'm afraid i'm afraid we've had a lot of work done in the garden on the garden path but the the garden is the same layout as it was in the time when the Carlyles lived here and we try and keep the plants in the period, and we know that we've got plants in there that the Carlyles had, because, again, Jane wrote about various things in the garden. That must be a tough one. I remember hearing about people who write into period dramas set in, say, Tudor times, and they'll be very annoyed because they've noticed some birdsong in the background which wouldn't be authentic for the time. Do you have horticulturalists pointing out things in the garden? No. <laughs> <laughs> and if they did, it wouldn't make any difference. <laughs> we... we um, Myself and, and Linda, we are the gardeners, so we garden in the spirit of Jane Carlyle. What was the spirit of Jane Carlyle? Well, it goes in, and if it grows, that's fine. If it doesn't, it's out. <laughs> we'll try something else. And we grow vegetables sometimes. Yeah. I agree with Jane's uh, gardening style, but I think I'm also spotting a little bit of, uh, more than a little bit of admiration in the way you speak of her. What, uh, about Jane? Yeah, I admire Jane, because I, I think she had such wit about her, and... and Again, reading about her and, and letters and things that other people have written about her, they came to see Jane as much as they did Thomas. And certainly Dickens was a, an admirer of Jane Carlyle. 
Is that admirer with inverted commas around it? Well, yes. And I think also um, people wrote later on of uh, Jane Carlyle that they were almost a lover of Jane Carlyle because they, they just found her fascinating. And when Thomas had gone up to Edinburgh uh, in 1866, just before Jane died, in fact, she didn't go with him. And Tyndall, who had gone with him, sent Jane a telegram to say that everything went okay. And she went off to John Forster's house and toasted his health with Wilkie Collins and Dickens. So they're the sort of people she knew. (laughs) So we might need to amend that Thackeray quote because people were knocking on the door, but not necessarily for Carlisle Mail. Oh, well, I don't know. I think they... Yes, they came to see him as much as Jane. <laughs> we're in a, as you can tell from the, the sound quality possibly, we're in a very, very small back room. I, yeah. c- I can't really imagine what use this room is. Well, when the Carlisles first moved here, the, there was no window in in the room. It, it was a cupboard. And it ah, was, right. It was where... I've, um, heard of, I've heard about cupboards, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was called the China Closet. So it would have had deep shelves, and this is where all the china would have been kept. And again, Jane... I think it was Jane had written in a letter that the cupboard was so big they could keep everybody's china in here. They didn't have very much. But uh, there are pictures in here of, of Jane and Thomas as a young man, which I think is a lovely picture done by Samuel Lawrence. They were a bit cat and dog, weren't they? Well, no. <laughs> well, no, this is, OK, this, this directly contradicts everything I've heard about the two. Apparently they were, they were barneying all the time, according to uh, some sources. Oh, well, that's people who don't read their letters. People Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. People who don't do their homework or research. I'm just, I guess, a little bit protective of Thomas and Jane. Yeah, they had their moments, like any couple. And, you know, when people say that they were unhappy, I mean, you know, when you think of Ruskin, whose marriage didn't last, you think of other people in their circle whose marriage didn't last. And yet Thomas and Jane, you know, they stayed together till her death. So... They weren't that bad. (laughs) (laughs) I shall fly the flag for Thomas and Jane and their marriage. (laughs) We're looking down at a glass-topped display case with what look like lockets here. Are we we seeing the man himself in there as well? Yes. Um, You've got uh, Jane Carlyle's hair. And actually, this is very much to do with with Jane. Um, Her wedding ring. And a, and a little ring that Thomas gave her with dolphins 
around and I think she's actually wearing some of her rings in the picture you can see there and this little lace cap which she's got on her head there I do love people whose lives span the arrival of photography yeah. Uh, so you, you can start to see how good the painted likenesses were. Yes, and uh, Robert Tate, who did a Chelsea interior in 1857, he took um, photographs in the house and Carlisle in the garden and took photographs of Jane in 1857. So it was very early photography. And um, it's quite apparently quite unusual for a photographer to photograph a house a sort of rather humble house like this because if photographers went to houses they were usually grand houses so it, it's quite unusual to have a documentation of the interior of a house like this Speaking of the interior we need to start moving up yes. through the building and, and exploring <laughs> the upper floors it occurs to me that this is a good time for a word from a sponsor who is audible by the way have you signed up for audible yet listener if you have not then what's keeping you as you know it's an audiobook service what would you recommend what should people be looking out for on maybe something carlisle related i don't know whether the french revolution will have made it onto audible yet does carlisle appear in fiction himself at all the only fiction book he wrote was sartor rosatus which is quite difficult to read. What about as a character in other people's fiction? Are you aware of Carlisle Perry? Well, having said that, I know Arthur Conan Doyle was an admirer of Carlisle um, and he came here with his new bride and to visit the house and, and he talks about the house in a, in a book. Oh, there's your way in. And I know for definite, because I did it, that you can download the entire works of Arthur Conan Doyle uh, for, for... Well, if you use our special offer, you can do it for free. So there we go. So over to the official word from the sponsor, and then we'll be back to explore more of Carlisle's house. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and I'm at the house of Thomas and Jane Carlyle with me, Lynn Skippings. Well, I'm at her house as well, really. <laughs> and we're in the drawing room, which is up on the first floor unless you're american in which case uh, it's all different is it i think this is the 28th floor in america and what a well-appointed room it is a lot of leather things to sit on writing desks uh, an enormous bookshelf stacked with volumes and uh, it's really the sort of room if you had a cat in here to sit on your lap you could easily nod off for a few hours yeah i would agree with that and it, it's strange you should say about the cat because some of our visitors have often said to me it's nice to see that you've got a cat like the one that's sitting by Thomas in the picture that Helen Allingham did. But we don't have a cat, and I think he must be a ghost. <laughs> a few people okay, have seen him. That's creepy. I was going to say a cat, really, is it would be a disaster in a, a, a place with all these uh, antique yeah. pieces of furniture. Yeah. But one of the nice things in this room is Jane Carlyle's um, decoupage screen. There are over 400 pictures on here. All of these pictures were stuck on... By Jane. And oh, they are actually. It's not an effect. Then they are actually stuck on. No, they're actually stuck on. I should describe it. It's a it's a, a four panel French screen of the sort you would use if you were changing out of your scanties, and on it we can see apparently pasted lots of sort of roughly photograph size 
images, a lot of them with a, a classical vibe. Yes, because, um, as I said, there are over 400 pictures. Uh, there are horses and authors, romantic ruins, um, Shakespeare, Tom Thumb. Where's Tom Thumb? He is here on a horse. He looks like huh. Napoleon. <laughs> and this is Fanny Kemble who actually came to this house. She was an actress, and uh, she came to visit the Carlyles. Madame Destel. Yes, so you've got... All of these pictures would have meant something to Jane Carlyle, and she would write often to people and say, I've run out of heads for my screen. <laughs> and John Forster sent her a package, and when she opened it, she was horrified because he'd cut all these pictures out of his own books and given them to her. Also, Anne Thackeray, Thackeray's daughter, when she used to come here with her sister Minnie as a little girl, they used to like coming to visit Jane. And later on, when Anne came as, as a grown-up woman, uh, she said it was so lovely to see Jane scream because her father did... Thackeray did little pictures for Jane Carlyle, which she, she stuck on the screen... So they're original Thackeray's. <laughs> and it's a beautiful object. And it reminds me very much of the, the sort of thing that you'd be paying top dollar for in Spitalfields Market in the present day. Oh, yes, I should think so. And, and this did have a function. You know, it would have kept the draft out because it's quite a drafty house. Um, I mean, you may think as you're going through it, it's cold because there's no heating mm. in the house. It would have just all been lit by coal fires. And... Uh, there was no electricity in the house in the Carlisle's time. Uh, there were oil lamps and candles, uh, and again, that would have been quite cheap. The landlord did have gas come to the house, but it only came as far as the kitchen and the front door. Hmm. Oh, that's Carlisle's 80th birthday gift from John Forster. Oh, the, the coal scuttle or the chair? The chair. The chair. <laughs> What's going on on the side? There's something. In, there's an attachment thing on the side of the chair. What's that? Yes, there he is. Oh, I see. There's, there's Thomas sitting in his chair. It's a picture done by Helen Allingham. OK, what's just happened here? Lynn has uh, come over to what I assumed was uh, some sort of a, a, a display pedestal near the chair. But it, in fact, what I was seeing at the side of the chair are two little brackets and there's uh, two on each side and the pedestal feeds into the brackets allowing a, oh, let's say a Victorian writer to write whilst in the chair. And yes. I want one. Yes, people often... Uh, say that that's perfect for an iPad. It, well, it is. Yes, <laughs> you're not using this. You don't. You, you, could I take it? What? Oh, this. Do you mind? No, we we would uh, miss it very much. Okay, I'll leave it. Also, something that you should look at before you we leave this room is this birthday tribute to Carlisle on his 80th birthday was signed by 119 of his friends and people who were influenced by Carlisle. So you've got Anthony Trollope, Charles Darwin, Erasmus Darwin. We're looking at a framed... It, look, it looks like a decree. It's about poster size. Yeah, and you've, uh, there's uh, Joseph Edgar Bohm, who was Queen Victoria's favourite sculptor, Robert Browning, who was a great friend of theirs, um, Leslie Stephen. Uh, now, I was hoping Leslie Stephen was going to come up at some yeah. point because, he, yeah, uh, he, of course, was the founder of the Dictionary of National Biography. That's right, yes. And I think he was personally friends with Carlyle as well. I'm certain I remember Virginia Woolf mentioning the sort of spectral form of Carlyle lurking in the front room uh, every now and again. But what Leslie Stephen was doing really captures the spirit of the great man. Yes, I think so, because uh, he was on the 
Carlisle House Memorial Trust Committee that raised the money. Uh, he, he signed his birthday tribute. And Virginia Woolf, um, as a, a young girl, used to come to this house with her father. After, this was after Carlisle had died, when he used to come here for committee meetings. And we have the very first visitors' books from when the house opened in 1895. And Virginia Stevens and her sister Vanessa and came with their aunt and Thackeray, Mrs Ritchie, and they signed our visitors' book. And Jane was to later write about this house in the... I think it was Good Housekeeping. She wrote a whole article about this house. While we're looking at the admirers yeah. of Carla, I wasn't sure how I was going to get this into the conversation in a diplomatic way because because yeah. we're on his literally his home turf here. Uh, Goebbels, I gather that Goebbels was quite an admirer, and, and there, the, the idea that the great man theory, whether it's coming from Carlyle or from Nietzsche or you know the Ubermensch thing, found us in trouble in the middle of the twentieth century internationally. What do you make of those sort of claims? Are, are the seeds there? Well, the I don't know where that started, but the only little bits that I know that um, Goebbels was reading to Hitler in the bunker in his last days from Carlyle's Frederick the Great. And I think it was um, when Frederick found himself in the same position as um, Hitler had was finding himself in. And I think Goebbels was reading those passages from Carlyle's um, books to try and boost his his confidence and his morale. So I think it's a little bit unjust that some people think that Carlyle um, is many things. Um, you know, just because somebody is reading your book doesn't make you that that person. Right, and he, he was there at comfort, as comfort food at the end rather I than as so. uh, forming I, the philosophy. Yes, and I think it was just the fact that um, perhaps that uh, Goebbels or Hitler found his book readable. I don't know, because Carlyle, he was also uh, an admirer of Goethe, and they corresponded. They never met, but they corresponded over a couple of years. And Carlyle wrote The Life of Schiller, which um, Goethe admired and had translated into German. And I think he tra- Carlyle also translated uh, Richter's works and fables. Um, so he, he did have an ad- admiration for the Prussians and the Germans. But I think that was very much about writing and work. And, you know, he was just fascinated by them. That's high praise, indeed, I think, for Goethe to have his work on Schiller translated yes. back into German. The other controversial thing, I think, that, and, and this is, I think, less ambiguously controversial, I gather Carlyle was supportive of slavery in the, the mid-19th century, which was quite a long time after that argument should have been uh, put to bed. Hmm. Well, again, I don't know very much about that. I know there was uh, a whole division when, was it the Governor Eyre? when he had some slaves shot uh, in retaliation for them killing some of his soldiers, I think. Yeah, that's right, Gordon, I think, yeah. Yeah, so it it split Carlisle and various friends. But I don't know. Sometimes I've heard people saying, you know, that Carlisle was not so much for slavery. What he was saying was, if you perhaps give them their freedom, 
you know, they need... They wouldn't have a name. They wouldn't have anywhere to live because they, they had the names of their slave owners, I believe. And Carlyle thought they should be educated before they were given their freedom. So I just don't know. I don't know. I think it's probably a bit more difficult than I'm saying. And one of the things that often saddens me doing this kind of work is it's necessary to kind of skim over detail and not be able to read in great depth, which, of course, if you've got a writer in front of you, uh, yeah. re- read read what they wrote and form your, form your views, which is what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to rush off and get into some of this stuff. We're moving uh, towards the next room. This is at the back of the house. And if I don't say something about the wood panelling here, I'm going to be neglecting my duties. Now, I think there's some sort of veneer going on here because um, I can see a sort of a bubbling effect going on. Does this mean that there's a a thin layer of wood laid over another sort of wood or something? Well, when the Carlisles moved here, the house was painted white. But what Jane had... This is all pine panelling throughout... Pine panelling. Pine panelling. And yet it's a it's a sort of ruby dark wood stain. Yeah, well, Jane had it papered, which was quite common in the Victorian times. You papered over cracks so that any bugs couldn't, you know, couldn't um, breed behind. And then she, it was painted to look like a light oak. Then Jane had it varnished so it could be wiped down. And over the years the varnish has just got darker and darker so that's what you're looking at which is the the original walls from the Carlisles and the bubbling that you see is actually paper that really is a trick on the eye isn't it yeah I think it's quite a cosy colour yeah (laughs) well into the next room we come um, the world's tiniest bed uh, to one side a four poster with a little uh, curtain around the top of it and this has quite a, f- a feminine feel to it. Yes, this became Jane's bedroom. Um, although when they moved here in 1835, they did um, share the same room up up above us, which is now actually my flat. Um, but as um, Jane got older, um, and they both suffered, uh, you know, they didn't sleep very well. So Jane decided to move into the front room on the second floor but it was noisy and the only other quiet room would have been at the back down on the first floor so she came down to this floor and again that was quite common in the Victorian times to show that you had a little bit of wealth so you had separate rooms and some people who were really wealthy had separate wings to their houses but this little bed you're right it is a small bed and Jane said it was the bed that she was born in and the bed she had as a child, so it came to the house. Well, I was guessing from the size of the wedding ring earlier on that she must have been a, a smallish person. Yes, I think she probably was, not much over five foot two or something mm. like that. Um, and just off this room, you've got a little um, dressing room. We're above the china cupboard now. And we've got a tiny little hip bath, which is original to the Carlisles as well. And um, children are often fascinated with this. They think it's a giant toilet, but um, <laughs> it's so tiny. But I, I guess they would have been used to using that because you couldn't bring up too much water from downstairs in the kitchen because, you know, you would you have to empty it all out again. How do you empty it out? Then you get a jug and you, you know, take the water out. Maybe they would have put it into a pail and carried it out. So this is a lot of work for... Uh... It for is. one bath. 
Yeah, and they had also, they had one maid who would have been the maid of all works. And they had many maids over many years. But, um, you know, some maids stayed 12 years, some maids stayed seven years, one maid stayed one morning. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what's the story there? (laughs) Well, it's just that, you know, she didn't like it. She didn't like the fact that she had to do everything as well as answer the door and do the cleaning. But Jane herself did quite a lot. And... Once again, you only have to look at Jane's or read Jane's letters about her maids and her funny stories about them, you know, that tell you... Oh, again, people say, oh, they couldn't have been very nice people to work for if they went through 34 maids in 32 years. But when you think that there was no contract, maids could come and go as they wanted. Mm. And sometimes you got a very young maid um, and Jane would try train them up and then they'd go and better themselves at bigger houses or they got married and then you got maids that um, were older but couldn't climb the stairs very well and Jane would often try and get maids who came from Scotland or Ireland because she thought they were the hardest workers but they were also the hardest drinkers and she had problems which you'll have to read in her letters (laughs) Where, where can we access these letters? They you sound can, fantastic. You can access them at the Collard's Letters Online. They're free uh, to access. And it's um, the, the letters are published by Duke University and they're all put online through the Carlisle Scholars that are still editing the letters today. That sounds like an American institution. It is, yeah. yeah. In uh, North Carolina. Good work, Duke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, there are, and what are they doing, them chronologically or...? Yes, from right from when they first met, the letters, and they've just got up to a point where Jane has died in 1866 and whether they can get the funding to carry on till 1881 when Thomas dies, I'm not sure, but they're now at this crucial moment. But for anybody interested in letters, in fact, in the, um, the Dictionary of Biography... Uh, Jane is credited with being one of the best women letter writers in the English language. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to uh, run bit... upstairs to the attic. No, we're out of time. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to. Well, do... I'll, sh- I'll show you anyway. Okay. Well, thank you. Strictly speaking, we're out of time, but because it's a podcast, we can be a little bit elastic if we need to be. So we're going to do a one-minute tour of what promises to be a more than one-minute attic. Upstairs we go. I'm feeling like an elderly arthritic maid at the moment. So this floor was built on in 1853. Um, Carlisle tried to get uh, a space where he could work that was soundproof and it never worked. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are in Carlisle's soundproof study. I can confirm that there's no way that this is soundproof. (laughs) (laughs) It's made out of matchwood, essentially. Yeah, well... Thomas wasn't best pleased with it and Jane said the um, the silent room is the noisiest room in the house because he could hear sounds up here that he didn't hear in the lower floors. Yeah, and I, and I don't know, listener, if you're able to pick that up in the background. <laughs> is it the planes? We can hear the planes. I heard a car go past. It echoes. <laughs> and Carlisle certainly heard the train whistles and church bells. Yes. And horses' hooves. Yes, yeah, yeah and just people, you know... And those uh, Italian the, the, organ grinders. Yeah, people shouting. 
<laughs> Must have been the hell up here, which is a shame because it's a lovely room. Listener, come and see it for yourself. Get yourself acquainted with the Carlisle House website, which is www.carlislehouse.org.uk. Uh, you can come and see what look like Carlisle's hands. They are Carlisle's hands. And uh, quills and books. I'm not going to go any further into it because uh, we want to leave plenty of meat on the bone. What have you got coming up? Do you do events and that sort of thing? Yes, we do. Suzette, uh, who runs the Last Tuesday Society, and she does something called Curious Minds, I think. She organises talks here. So we do a series of talks, and we hope... This year we'll have a talk by Andrew Motion on either Keats or Larkin. This sounds good to me. I, just in the, in the dying moments of the interview, yeah. I have one question, and this is possibly a silly question, but in the early... Where's the toilet? <laughs> you missed well, the... now, now, now that you've told me that, now I'm going to start to panic, but no, it wasn't. In the early pictures I've seen of Carlisle, he is a, a fair-skinned fellow, and the later pictures I've seen of him, he is quite clearly a white man. But there's this whole phase during the middle of his life, in, in both photographs and pictures, where he, he it seems incredibly dark-skinned. Is yeah. that just the photographic? Uh, well, it's, no, because it's also in, in painted pictures. What was going on? Was he away on holiday a lot or something? <laughs> no, I, well, he was an outdoor man. He was quite rugged. But maybe it was because in his later years he grew a beard. So what you're seeing no, is probably... No, I know the difference beard. between a bearded man and a dirty man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to look further into this. On that note of mystery, we have to stop. Uh, Lynn Skippings, thanks very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. My heart And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Lynn Skippings. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. The theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Moore. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.